0: It's 2018, I'm James Carlton, God Forbid! Hello, I'm James Carlton, welcome to God Forbid. This week we're looking at human progress. Poverty and conflict still exist, but the world is richer, safer, healthier and freer than at any time in history. Now this march to prosperity began centuries ago in Europe and it spread around the world and we're asking why. Was it because religion was replaced with reason, the enlightenment foundations of secularism and science, of law and liberty, or was Christianity the foundation of that foundation? After all, the most famous set of laws is the Ten Commandments. Here's atheist comedian George Carlin explaining why there are 10. Up on a mountain, When no
1: one was around, God had given the Ten Commandments. Why ten? Why not nine? Or eleven? Because ten sounds official. They knew if it was eleven, people wouldn't take it seriously. Say, what, are you kidding me? The eleven commandments? Get out of here. But ten... Ten sounds important. Ten is the basis for the decimal system. It's a decade. It's a psychologically satisfying number. The top ten, the ten most wanted, the ten best dressed. So having ten commandments was really a marketing decision.
0: Comedian George Carlin. And now to our God Forbid panel. Visiting Australia from the UK is Nick Spencer, Research Director at Theos, the ecumenical think tank on religion and society. He's the author of The Evolution of the West and also the book Atheists, The Origin of the Species. He's just finished an Australian lecture tour and joined us on the God Forbid panel before returning home. Farewell from Australia. Welcome to God Forbid, Nick Spencer. Nick Spencer. Thank you. It's great to be here. Now, Nick, you say to properly understand the world, we must understand religion. Why? It's a
2: religious world. It's surprising how many people don't get that, but something like 87% of the world claim adherence to a religion. And according to the forecasts, at least by the Pew Foundation, that's actually increasing. So historically, the world's been religious, it is religious today, and it's going to be religious in the 21st century. And if you want to understand the world better, it helps to understand religion.
0: And do you think there's not a lot of understanding religious
2: illiteracy in your country and mine? I think the short answer is yes. We've done polling at Theos that reveals very few people know the content of the scriptures or basic theology. Now, in one sense, that's not necessarily a problem, but it is a problem if people re- pronounce on it and say, Christians believe this, or indeed Muslims or Jews believe this, and in actual fact, they're not really sure what they do believe.
0: Also on the God Forbid panel, Fatima mission. She's a writer, a consulting editor for Eureka Street, a publication of the Australian Jesuits. She also blogs on society and politics at medium.com. Plus, she co hosts the podcast Chatter Square from our Melbourne studio and first time welcome on the God Forbid panel to Fatima Misham.
3: Thanks for having me, James. And hello to Nick.
0: Hi. So, Fatima, do you think it's important for people to know about religion, even if they're not particularly religious?
3: I certainly think so. I used to be an English teacher and we would study novels that would sometimes have religious references or characters. It was really important to understand the context. It's a shared language across literature, but it's also important in terms of social cohesion. Um, In Australia, we have a number of politicians who often say terrible things about Muslims and it turns out they don't actually understand the religion itself. So I think in order to, you know, inoculate the general public against fear-mongering, it's really, really important that people at least know the fundamentals of, you know, a variety of religions. Comparative religion should actually be a school subject. I mean, Christianity doesn't have a monopoly on moral values.
0: Do you mind if I ask what your religion is?
3: I am born and raised Catholic. I'm probably, to be honest, more culturally Catholic these days. (laughs)
0: Nick?
2: I just also want to add that the the traffic is two-way here. I think there is a need for, I suppose, what you might call secular literacy. In other words, for religious people to find out more about what secularism entails and indeed what humanism entails. Mm. There are certainly Christians amongst whom I have mixed who see secularism as inherently a threat and secularists as these godless monsters that that terrorise us. It isn't that, and it's perfectly possible for Christians to hold secular views and yet to maintain a religious belief system. And that is sometimes lost in the fog
0: of war. Well, Nick, last month, the world-famous Harvard psychologist, Professor Steven Pinker ruined your Valentine's Day. This is not because uh, he hit on your wife, but because you did agree to debate him, and that meant you only had a day or so to read his 450-page book, Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism and Progress. Did that debate go well? It did, actually. We got on really well, and like all
2: good debates, there was both agreement and disagreement.
0: (laughs) Essentially, Nick, you and Steven Pinker agree that the... Last 300 years has seen human progress like nothing before it in history, but you disagree strongly about why. Here's Stephen Pinker on what he says is the cause. The 18th century Age of Enlightenment in Europe. He's speaking at the Oslo Freedom Forum.
4: There are four themes to the Enlightenment. Reason, science, humanism, and progress. It all begins with reason. Now, human beings, on their own, are not particularly reasonable, to put it mildly. Cognitive psychologists have shown that we are likely to generalize from anecdotes, to seek evidence that confirms our beliefs and dismiss evidence that disconfirms them. We project stereotypes onto individuals, and we're overconfident about our knowledge, our wisdom, and our rectitude. However, human beings are capable of reason, particularly if we set up norms and institutions that refine our collective wisdom, such as free speech, logical analysis, and empirical testing. Which brings me to the second ideal of the Enlightenment, science. Science begins from the realization that traditional sources of belief are generators of delusion. Faith, revelation tradition, authority, charisma, mysticism, conventional wisdom, gut feelings, subjective certainty, hermeneutic parsing of sacred tests, these are all recipes for being wrong. Instead, the path to knowledge is to formulate possible explanations and to test them against reality. Science, we know, is our most reliable means of understanding the world, including ourselves. The third Enlightenment theme is humanism, that the ultimate moral purpose is to reduce the suffering and enhance the flourishing of men, women, and children. Now, when you say that, it may sound obvious or unexceptionable or banal or even saccharine, but indeed it is anything but. There are alternatives to humanism, Many alternative ideologies hold that the ultimate good is to enhance the glory of the tribe or the nation or the race or the class or the faith instead of individual human beings. To advance a mystical force, a dialectical struggle, or the pursuit of a utopian or messianic age. To obey the dictates of a divinity and pressure others to do the same. Now, humanism is feasible because people are endowed with a sense of sympathy. We have the capacity to feel each other's pain, to express a concern with one another's welfare. Unfortunately, by default, our circle of sympathy is rather small. We extend it to our blood relatives, our close friends and allies, cute little fuzzy baby animals, and not much else. However, our circle of sympathy can be expanded through cosmopolitanism, through education, through journalism, through art, through mobility, and through reason. The realization that I can't say that my interests are more important than yours, just because I'm me and you're not, and hope for you to take me seriously. So the final Enlightenment ideal is that progress is possible if we apply knowledge to try to enhance human flourishing. Progress is not a law of nature, but it is a gift of pursuing the ideals of the Enlightenment. Human effort is not futile, and despite the headlines, humanity has made tremendous progress and there is reasonable hope for much more.
0: Harvard's professor of psychology, Steven Pinker, summarizing his book, Enlightenment Now, the Case for Reason, Science, Humanism and Progress. Fatima, he makes a compelling case, don't you think?
3: Oh, look, first of all, I need to say that a lot of the preoccupation with the Enlightenment seems to occur in the Anglophone world. I don't know that the rest of the world really cares. You know, this whole idea, too, that reason, humanism, science, all that sort of stuff is exclusively captured by the Enlightenment is obviously inaccurate. For people like me, sometimes it's taken as code for you know, are hearkening back to a time when Western countries dominated the world and colonised and built empires. So to me, sometimes when I hear, especially white people talk about Enlightenment, I wonder what the agenda actually is, because there's a lot that's happened since the Enlightenment, and it was people of colour and women who ended up refining what it meant to be free.
0: Now, Nick, you would in fact say that Christianity has as much to do with the prosperity and freedom that we enjoy today, as the Enlightenment did? I certainly would do. Christianity's contribution
2: is providing a framework in which certain crucial institutions develop, and they happen to come together in the Enlightenment period. Things like political accountability, rule of law, the idea that humans have some form of rights, the idea that humans are fundamentally equal. Now, these things existed in theory, long before the 18th century. Occasionally, they even existed in practice too. What you see is them coming together in a particular way at this time. But they didn't emerge as ideas in this time. But wasn't
0: the 18th century Enlightenment contradicting Christianity? It was about saying reason came first, not religious dogma, about saying that clerics shouldn't be in charge So this is where it's very
2: important to pull apart the idea of the Enlightenment, and historians often talk about Enlightenments. There is certainly a very strong anti-clerical strand, particularly within the French Enlightenment, which is much more hostile to Christianity and much more openly atheistic. The British, and in a different way the American Enlightenments are not anything like as anti-clerical, largely because basically Anglican clerics in the 18th century, tended to be more inclusive and expansive in their intellect than French Catholic clerics did. The source of our material prosperity can be traced far more closely to the Industrial Revolution that starts in England and Scotland in the 18th century, and the Enlightenment that Britain
0: enjoyed was not anti-clerical. Nick, wasn't the Enlightenment all about realising that the Bible didn't explain how the world worked and science could do a better job? I would have to say no to that. The scientific revolution
2: draws on some pretty foundational Christian ideas to get it going. Like so what? The idea that the world is ordered and critically, and this is the thing that really makes a difference, the idea that in understanding creation, you are actually giving glory to God. They are critical, if you like, building blocks for the scientific enterprise.
3: Can I jump in? Because I want to, as far as science is concerned, I don't see it as a break. It was a progression. So much of the foundations of scientific knowledge actually came out of the Middle Ages. Because the Catholic Church, you know, in particular, had the resources to fund research and to pay monks and clerics who had all the time in the world to conduct experiments and make observations. Gregor Mendel was an Augustinian friar, and he is seen as the father of genetics. So this idea that there's a break between reason and faith or science and religion, that wasn't the case at all.
0: On RN, it's God forbid we're with Nick Spencer, the research director at Theos, the London think tank on religion and society, the author of The Evolution of the West. Also, Fatima Misham, she's a writer, consulting editor at Eureka Street. She also blogs at Medium.com and co hosts the Chatter Square podcast. Next, the darling of the politically incorrect, University of Toronto psychology professor, Dr. Jordan Peterson. <laughs> Professor Jordan Peterson has just finished his sell-out tour of Australia. He's the Canadian professor, famous for his criticism of modern feminism and what he calls the tyranny of political correctness. He's less well-known for his views on Bible stories. He says we must understand them, even though he himself is not particularly religious. Andrew West from RN's Religion and Ethics Report asked, With Christianity on the decline in the West, what replaces it?
1: How about Marxism? How about fascism? Neither very successfully. Well, I I guess it depends on your definition of success. If you want to stack up the corpses, Marxism and fascism are your avenue forward. But if you want to produce a society that's civil and that alleviates suffering and that allows people the possibility of at least tolerable individual lives and maybe more than that, then you don't turn in that direction, that's for sure. You need an image of the divinity and transcendent power of the individual. And you don't find that in fascism or Marxism. All you find is tribalism and collectivism, and then every horror that comes along with that. So is is part of your profession, in a way, psychology replacing religion? Well, hopefully not replacing, but perhaps helping to explain consciously. I think this is the case particularly for thinkers like Carl Jung or Mercia Eliot is a good example as well. These people who spent their lives decoding the psychological significance of profound narratives. It's time, I think, in the West that we have to make our religious presuppositions conscious and articulate, rather than merely embedded in story and drama. We have to understand them in order to to reunite with them. And we need to reunite with them because if we lose our foundational stories, then we lose our culture. For better or for worse, the foundational story of Western culture is the Bible. And I actually am quite an admirer of Western culture. I think it's produced the freest, richest, best societies, certainly that exist on the planet now and that I would say have ever existed.
0: Dr Jordan Peterson, Professor of Psychology at Toronto University, speaking with Andrew West. And for the full interview, head to RN's Religion and Ethics Report website or through the smartphone app. Listen. Fatima, West is best. Do you agree?
3: No. (laughs) Now, I think this idea of foundational stories, it's really like setting off alarm bells for me. You know, the best societies. For whom? Like, that's why I always ask for whom was it really great? Whose foundational stories? Because, like, these aren't, these aren't foundational stories for descendants of the Atlantic slave trade. These aren't foundational stories for Aboriginal peoples who had their cultures wiped out in the name of Christianity, in the name of Western democracy. This isn't even, you know, the foundational story for the Philippines who had a pre existing form of, of government and settlements and culture and customs before the Spanish arrived. So whose foundational stories? I think, you know, when you start asking that, you start sort of picking up that there's an agenda around this idea that we need to return to our roots. Mm. (laughs) You know, like, and and, and like I said before, there's an air of superiority that comes out of the discussion that's actually quite alienating for people who bore the brunt, you know, European prosperity came out of colonisation and imperialism, so.
0: Fatima, you're right to say it's Europe's foundational story, but what about Tony Abbott, what he said in a speech last year, that because the modern world today is unimaginable without the legacy of Western civilization, women's equality, the abolition of slavery, individual freedom, religious tolerance, freedom of expression, this is the West's gift to the world.
3: Um, It's funny because we look back now and it's like, oh, you know, Western civilization gave us all these things, but plenty of the rights that we take for granted today had to be fought for. So, you know, I think it's really important to take a step back and think about what we can extract that is actually useful for everyone, not just for, you know, a certain privileged section of society that are feeling a little bit wobbly about all these voices that are challenging, you know, their status.
0: Nick, do you think West is best and with it Christianity? If you want to trace
2: ideas of rights and rule of law and democratic accountability and those kind of things historically, you're most likely to find them having originated in Western cultures. That's historical fact. And because of that, from Christianity. Very often because of Christianity. But, and here's the critical fact, it's not as if all Westerners or all Christians at particular points in time decided, yes, the rule of law is going to be a great thing. Or yes, we need to recognise people's rights. Or yes, we need to be tolerant of minorities. In actual fact, Fatima is entirely right that these were almost always the results of fierce struggles within the West, or within countries within the West, in which one group of Western Christians were pitted against another group and fought for those rights, very often by people who were on the very periphery of Western civilization. So I would root these ideas back into Western cultures, but that's emphatically not to treat the West as some necessarily and universally civilising force. It's almost always the result of some pretty tough conflicts within the West.
0: Nick, Jordan Peterson was saying that if we lose our connection with our biblical foundational narrative, our Bible stories, we risk turning to communism or fascism. Mm. Do you seriously think a country like Australia could do that if it forgets the few remaining Bible stories that it hasn't already forgotten? It's easy to caricature that
2: point of view, and sometimes Christians are the worst at doing so. You know, they give the impression that you know, if we don't know our Bibles anymore, we're going to find ourselves in some apocalyptic wasteland. It doesn't work like that. I think it is true that human nature abhors an ideological vacuum. The 20th century showed this in Technicolor, really. If societies abandon coherent ideological unifying forces... They move towards others, and in the 20th century, they move towards the secular religions of fascism and communism. Now, hopefully, we have learned from that, but that doesn't mean that if 21st century societies divest themselves of their ideologies, they're going to simply move into some kind of post-ideological
0: phase. So what's the bottom line? Can you be an irreligious society that remembers nothing of its Christian foundation and democratic and free? That is a million dollar question. I suspect in the long run,
2: it would be very difficult. In the short run, there's a momentum and these things carry on. But it's a recognised argument now, and not simply among Christian thinkers, that democracies, to function and sustain themselves, need deeper commitments to public justice. And the reason why that might crumble, and ironically, Stephen Pinker in that clip said this most succinctly, is because we are naturally a tribal species. We do not naturally think in universal ethics. And so the inclination is always to slide towards looking after me, my own, and those who are like me.
0: We always have to guard against that slide towards tribalism. Interesting, Fatima. Are you grounded by Christianity in that way or do you think, you know, democracy can live on without religion?
3: I think democracy is the technical solution for living together. It doesn't really provide the answers to why we should not kill each other, you know, or why we should not kill old people or disabled people or... It's a, it's a neat technical solution for, you know, the reality that we have to self-govern in a way that isn't going to descend into chaos. I think religion, Christianity, Islam, it addresses different questions altogether. And in a way, actually, they could animate democracy because of the way that they engage with the questions that democracy doesn't concern itself with. Why are we here? <laughs> what is our life for, what does it mean to live with other people? And just you know, invoking democracy doesn't tell us anything. It boils down to priorities, doesn't it?
2: I think, we've, I think that's right, and I think we've seen this in gory detail in the 21st century with the invasion of Iraq and then the Arab Spring. There was the assumption in certain Western intellectual circles that you liberate a nation from a tyrant and democracy will automatically take root. Well, that didn't happen. It's not saying that such... Countries are incapable of being democratic, but it does tend to point to the fact that democracy, if you like, is the cherry on the cake.
0: Are you saying Iraq didn't turn to democracy
2: because it has a Muslim foundation and heritage, not Christian? No, I'm not saying that. What I am saying is it didn't turn to democracy, and this is often the case in, in other Middle Eastern countries, because there aren't the institutions of trust and law
0: that make democracy workable. But you were saying that those institutions of trust and law come from Christianity And if Iraq has been predominantly Muslim for 1,500 years, then that's why those foundations aren't in Iraq. That's why the invasion of Iraq didn't result in a flourishing Jefferson-style democracy. So historically, you can
2: certainly make that argument, but I wouldn't support the view that Islamic countries can't therefore be democratic. We have to recognise that there are plenty of Christian countries that did not have significant democratic histories.
0: Sure, but you're saying one part of the picture of why it's not democratic and a resisting force going forward to democracy is Islam. One of
2: the most important things Jesus said was render unto Caesar that which is Caesar and to God with that which is God. In other words, that provided a legitimacy for what we would call secular power. If you like, it was the seeds from which you get the separation of powers that very slowly emerged in the West. Now, Islam doesn't have a comparative statement, if you like, which means having independent, quote-unquote, secular political authorities is a harder thing to achieve, and that acts as an uh, inhibitor for the development of democracy and political accountability. But you can't assume that history in that regard is, is going to be a determinant, and that therefore it is impossible, certainly not for Muslims to live in democracy, that's, de- that's demonstrably not true, or for Islamic countries to develop democratic institutions. Fatima?
3: Well, I'm a bit conscious that none of us are Muslims and we're talking about Islam. So I think I just want to put a a pin on that. I, I I think the idea that Muslim countries are incapable of democratic forms of government is patently... Untrue, And I think I would question, this goes back to what we've been talking the whole time about the Enlightenment, is that it takes up so much bandwidth and there's not enough that actually goes into examining how other parts of the world thought about th- freedom, thought about equality. Because Islam or, or the origins of Islam, you know, women had more rights during, you know, Muhammad's time. Um, there's an entire, you know, system of jurisprudence the longing for freedom is a universal one. The longing for equality and, and meaning in life is a is a universal one. And I don't believe that Christianity or, or Western thinkers had a monopoly on, on the answers to these questions.
2: If we were having this conversation 100 years ago, you could easily point to um, the Countries in the world that were democratic and those that weren't, and then you could draw the conclusion, well, it seems to be impossible then for Catholic countries to be democratic, because those that Mm. were 100 years ago would have been Protestant. If we had this conversation 40 years ago, you could have said, well, it seems to be that it's perfectly okay to be um, democratic and Protestant and democratic and Catholic, but it's very unlikely you're going to be democratic and orthodox, simply because 40 or so years ago, the majority um, of countries that were democratic would have had some kind of Protestant or Catholic heritage. And yet, you do get, of course, now orthodox countries that are democratic.
0: So we may well be sitting here in 50 years' time and be saying that there is...
2: That, that, that we could be saying that actually democracy is compatible with all major monotheistic religions. Now, that is everyone's hope but it isn't aided by any sense of of people saying, well, Muslim countries can't be democratic. If you had taken that line 100 years ago, Catholic countries can't be democratic, you would naturally have impeded Catholic countries becoming democratic. You seek to draw out the democratic and the politically accountable tendency within those religious traditions in order to
0: build strong religious democratic countries. On our end, it's God forbid... We're with Nick Spencer, the research director at Theos, the London think tank on religion and society, and Fatima Misham, consulting editor for Eureka Street. Up next, the fight for democracy in one Middle Eastern country, in particular, Egypt. In 2011, religion, politics and music collided in Egypt. It was the Arab Spring and calls for democracy in Cairo's Tahrir Square. At the protest was a little known singer songwriter, Rami Assam. His life changed forever because, thanks to social media, his music became an anthem of resistance. Rami Assam was in Australia for the Woodford Folk Festival in Queensland, and RN's Jeff Woods spoke with him, the man known as the Bob Dylan of the Middle East. They're on stage before a capacity crowd, Rami's voice a little croaky after a series of high intensity concerts.
5: I was protesting in Mansoura, Mansoura is my hometown. And when we won the fight against the police in each city, we all moved to Tahrir Square in Cairo, in the capital. And while I was there, this speech that Mubarak did, it was very disappointing for the people. And in the same day, I was started working already on the song. I just choose the most important chants, Mubarak, which means down down Mubarak. Scott People demand removal of the regime. mish hanemshi, he leaves, we stay. And I added one sentence which says, Talabna Haga We are all one hand, have one demand, leave. And I just made it in a very simple groove so people can just move with it and it was fantastic that first time I started to sing they know the lyrics already because they've been using it for a few days and it was a great moment to see how much music can change the mood after people being so disappointed and this song I've been using again is like many regimes, we had four different regimes after the revolution and I've been using it in so many occasions because the concept is about just chance. so I was always like using the new chants coming on in the streets and putting it in the same melody and it, it was always working so well. I had long hair also in the, in the beginning of the revolution I, I was having a ponytail And seven years ago, that was not so acceptable culturally in Egypt that the guy's having long hair. And the first day I joined the set in Cairo in Tahrir Square, I will never forget how people didn't like me in the beginning, or they didn't understand what I'm doing there, ponytail and guitar. After like bloody fights for like five days with the police, I was not welcomed. And I was a bit shy in the beginning. I was trying to hide the guitar the first day. But then, after a while, I started to sing for my friend that was with me. I was just singing for him, like in a corner. And then some people started to come closer and hear the songs. They felt good. I felt more confident. And then I did it again in another spot. And then I felt more confident. And at these times, I was sitting on the ground. But then I decided to stand up and show myself. And then I was standing on a high step. And then so many people started to see me. And I was singing for like hundreds, but because it was unplugged, so people couldn't hear me well because of the crowd. But I was lucky that a small group of guys were just marching the square, having speakers on their shoulders and microphones. And they came closer, they liked the songs, they put microphone for the guitar on me, it became louder, and this was the first time to sing. <laughs> yeah,
4: so it so worked in the end. Thanks. I think you said that at that moment, you were born in Tahrir Square. Yeah. Who was born?
5: It was a reborn for me and so many people. I think I was working on, on myself to be a better human being from before the revolution, and that's why I joined the revolution. But the revolution changed us so much, made us at least um, understand what is freedom and, and how freedom is, is a right for everybody, no matter what it is or which way. Even if we don't have real freedom in Egypt, but the people who joined the revolution, we experienced the freedom for the first time. So when people are not free, so, or people are afraid all the time, so this is not a good life. So when we had, for the first time, being fearless from everything and feeling the freedom for the first time, that's why we call it a reborn.
4: Well, if you've just joined us, my guest is Rami Essam, the voice of the Egyptian revolution who's been called the Bob Dylan of the Middle East, which is a hard label to live up to.
5: Many journalists wrote that. It's something good, very good to be mentioned as a, as Bob Dylan because he did a great work but we're still very different and like we have different music and the experience he had in the street is, is a bit different than his way, but It's an honor in the end, anyway.
4: One thing that's very different with that label, Rami, is that Egypt is a Muslim-majority country. Yeah. What role did religion have in the protests?
5: In the beginning, all the religious groups, they they didn't join. It was so, like, free movement and liberal movement in in all ways, and and then uh, the Muslim Brotherhood and also the Salafist people, they joined and they tried to take piece of the cake. I was not happy about what they've been doing. And they lost, in the end, everything. And they, they really took so many steps back, even in the political scene. Most of my songs are political songs, for sure. Like, revolutionary songs, like some radical revolution songs, and 25% is like that, and 50% is political songs, and I have 25% of, like, songs about life in general. In the first five years, I was only focusing about the political songs and the revolution. But now I'm... Because before being called as a voice of a revolution and... I, I'm an artist before anything and I would like to sing about everything in life, not just revolution. But uh, my cause is, is my priority and I will keep fighting for it till my last day. But I also would like to sing about everything, so... I would like always to be represented in this way. لما تكون شغل بزمة خايف على مصلحة الأمة شغلك يطلع من غير لازمه علشان ما غير واطي تاطي راسك تاطي تاطي انت في وطن ديمقراطي ولما شقك يصبح مش ليك فقرك سد السك عليك تتلفت تلقى حواليك
0: Rami Assam, the voice of the Egyptian revolution, speaking with RN's Jeff Wood at the Woodford Folk Festival. Well, Fatima, we've been talking about the slow march of progress over centuries. In Tahrir Square, we saw almost instantaneous progress, and not from clerics, from kids with mobile phones.
3: Well, it goes back to what we were talking about in terms of universal human aspirations for freedom and for dignity and for equality. I suppose it makes the case that much of the Enlightenment has an enduring legacy, it's still the ideals that are still something that's being fought for, especially by young people today.
0: Nick, do you think the longing for freedom is inherent in the human? Oh, I think it is. But I suppose the key
2: question is freedom for whom? What strikes me listening to that is that it demands an awful lot of courage and coordination to bring down a political autocrat but it requires an awful lot of courage and coordination then to reconstruct a functioning political system And that needs more than just the yearning to be free. It needs the yearning to recognise that other people who might have other visions of the good life and working not just for your freedom or for the freedom of those who are like you, but freedom of those who are fundamentally different from you, freedom for those who might even be a bit of a threat to you. That is really challenging. And sadly, as
0: we've seen in in the subsequent years, it hasn't been achieved. And that's why we saw, disappointingly but understandably, Christian Egyptians being fearful of democracy. I think that's right. And I think,
2: you know, all people who are for minority groups in societies have those anxieties. Unless a society has a secure political equality and a rule of law, you're always naturally going to feel vulnerable as a minority there.
3: You know, when the Arab Spring was, was unfolding, it reminded me a lot of what Filipinos had to do in order to overthrow... Marcos, the 1986 revolution and the work and effort that was put into reinstalling democratic institutions because executive powers, you know, were so um, corrupted. But fast forward a few decades on and you look at the Philippines now under President Rodrigo Duterte and the Philippines seems to make the case that it's not enough to install democratic institutions. Something else seems to be required it requires vigilance
0: even in a majority mm. christian country
3: that's right well you know it's it's been quite disheartening and demoralizing to see friends who you know are avid catholics basically turning a blind eye to the extrajudicial killings that are still going on there so I think we can talk and talk about the virtues of democracy and Christianity, but I think the way it plays out in real life should make us stop short and consider other variables and other factors that are at play that goes into making a civilised society.
0: Well, let's turn now to the terrible news of last month, that mass shooting at the school in Parkland, Florida when a teenager used a semi-automatic assault rifle to murder 17 children and teachers and wound 17 more. It was like so many before it, except this time the surviving students led the campaign for change. And within a fortnight, they'd set up a gun control group with millions of followers and they have a major demonstration planned for March 24, which will take place in Washington and all around America. Have a listen here to the speech of 18-year-old Emma Gonzalez, who survived the shooting, and her speech went viral.
6: The people in the government who were voted into power are lying to us, and us kids seem to be the only ones who notice and are prepared to call BS. Companies trying to make caricatures of the teenagers nowadays, saying that all we are is self-involved and trend-obsessed, and they hush us into submissions. When our message doesn't reach the ears of the nation, we are prepared to call BS. Politicians politicians who sit in their gilded House and Senate seats funded by the NRA telling us nothing could have ever been done to prevent this, we call BS. Yeah. They say that tougher gun laws do not decrease gun violence, we call BS. They say a good guy with a gun stops a bad guy with a gun, we call BS. BS. They say guns are just tools like knives and are as dangerous as cars. We call BS. They say that no laws could have been able to prevent the hundreds of senseless tragedies that have occurred. We call BS. BS. That us kids don't know what we're talking about, that we're too young to understand how the government works. We call BS. BS. If you agree, register to vote. Contact your local congresspeople and give them a piece of your
0: mind. Emma Gonzalez, only 18 years old, a high school student who survived the Parkland School Massacre. What do you make of that, Fatima?
3: Oh, look, it was just really amazing to see, you know, when Parkland happened, I have to admit, it used to be like a gut-wrenching experience when you hear about these shootings. But when Parkland happened, initially I was like, oh, it's just another day in the US. I'm sorry, that sounds really harsh. But then I think these kids have really put themselves on the line and turned the conversation, like there's a distinct pivot that's going on. And we're not sure whether it'll go as far as changing policy. I'm not sure that that's going to be the case, but they've certainly emboldened and revived the conversation in, in ways that are quite compelling, that people are finding difficult to ignore. I mean, I don't know if you guys have had kids, but kids have got a certain clarity <laughs> into what matters. You know, their friends matter, their life matters, you know. And, and I think this generation the coming generations are coming into an environment as well where they are empowered social media enables them to organize themselves so they get the passion and they've got you know the education they're quite aware and exposed to you know certain languages and ways of being that previous generations probably didn't have and they have the tools and instruments at their disposal to make themselves heard
0: which is a change because it's the young and the very old who were the most ignored till now.
3: And look it's to some degree it's not unusual like young people have always been at the vanguard of revolution or of, you know, dissent because they haven't got that learned helplessness that older adults have. You know, they're not, they're not yet jaded or demoralised. You know, the sense of possibility is so much wider and pure. Yeah, it's, it's really, really great to see. And I can't imagine that it'll be a blip. I think we're going to see more of that kind of demonstration and protest.
0: And as a former teacher, are you seeing something <laughs> different in today's Teenagers than from generations past.
3: Oh, definitely. You know, when I was growing up, we were a pretty passive and compliant bunch. You know, we took we took um, what our teachers said as you know the word. But when I was teaching, I taught at a state school in the western suburbs of Melbourne, and kids were quite critical, and they weren't afraid to say what they thought, and they took in the things that happened around them and processed it well away from any kind of input from from adults. You know, they were working out things out for themselves.
0: What do you think about this, Nick Spencer?
3: I do
2: think that most moral issues are complex. This one strikes me as not being so. I cannot get my head round the idea of live ammo being sold in supermarkets and Mm. almost ubiquitous gun ownership and this elision of freedom with the freedom to carry gun. And I know, of course, it's in the constitution, and I know there are kind of historical and deeply symbolic meanings there, but it beggars belief from anybody you know, outside of that mindset that
0: that could be in any way acceptable. And yet it seems the loudest and clearest voice against gun violence in America comes from young people who are the least religious generation. Yeah, I mean,
2: let's let's be honest here with, you know, I, I I suspect I don't have the figures on this, so I'm guessing, but I suspect if you were to analyze people's approval of guns in the US, it would correlate quite strongly with with religiosity. The, the kind of the, the famous God guns and gays analogy. I once saw a kind of a satirical wristband which had who would Jesus shoot on it. <laughs> and I think that, that that sums it up. That if you can imagine Jesus defending gun laws and, and you know carrying a semi-automatic weapon, I suggest you need to read the gospels a bit more.
3: Yeah, it's it's just a, an, another example of how Christianity is of, often invoked or you know used as a cloak for things that are actually not not Christian at all. Mm.
0: Yeah. So Fatima, do you see a left-right divide within Christianity?
3: Um, that's an interesting... I mean, I think I've often pondered, you know, the intersections between religion and, and politics because religion is a power unto itself. It's a power base as well. And so it's often used by people in power in order to police morals or to police bodies of women, things like that. I think in the US, it's far more pronounced. I actually had a conversation with uh, Massimo Fagioli, a theologian at um, Villanova. He's Italian-American, and he came into the US and then realized that the political binary between the Republicans and the Democrats has seeped into Catholicism as well. So there are Catholics who actually see themselves first as Republican or Democrat rather than Catholic, and so the the political divide ends up being a religious divide in some sense as well, even internally, even within denominations. What do you think, Nick?
2: Well there undoubtedly is this divide. You see it in um, lots of countries and most famously in the US. There shouldn't be, if only because you know Christianity is 2,000 years old and the left-right divide is 200 years old. So you're mm. mapping a much, much, much more recent political spectrum onto a much older religious one. I think it's sometimes it's tragic when religious believers end up defining their identity primarily through kind of much more contemporary political categories. That's not to say there aren't yeah, it isn't a spectrum of different views within religions. There certainly are, but they don't naturally coincide with political divisions. On our end, it's God forbid. Up
0: next, the quiz. Wits end. Yes, it's Wits End, the God Forbid quiz. This week, our contestants fight it out for an autographed copy of Stephen Pinker's Enlightenment Now, the case for reason, science, humanism and progress, plus a copy of the Bible unsigned by the authors. As always, we begin with the buzzers. Nick Spencer from the religion think tank Theos. Test your buzzer.
2: There is no such thing as a Christian child.
0: Thank you, Richard Dawkins. Fatima Misham, test your buzzer. God said to Noah, build yourself an anarchy,archy. Thank you, um... Ned Flanders. First question. This week, our God forbid panellist Nick Spencer delivered a lecture entitled Where Did I Come From? Christianity, Secularism and the Individual. Now, it has nothing to do with the 1973 book of the same name, Where Did I Come From? What was that book about? It was an international bestseller. I'll give you a clue. Was sex it education? Sex education, you say? I'm guessing. Well, let's have a listen to a reading from the book to see if you are right.
4: If you were to put your mother and your father in the bath together, you'd notice something very, very interesting. You'll see that just below the middle, between the legs, both the man and the woman have patches of furry hair.
0: Clearly that book's out of date according to modern taste, so I'm told at least, but yes, you are correct, Nick Spencer, it was a uh, sex education book, controversial at the time because it graphically but gently explained the birds and the bees in all detail. Peter Mayles was the author. Follow-up question. Nick Spencer, in your lecture this weekend entitled Where Did I Come From, did you plagiarise from that sex education book? I didn't, but I wish I had now. (laughs) (laughs) What about this question? Six years ago, Where Did I Come From, the children's sex education book, not your lecture, was banned in which country?
2: There is no such thing as a Christian
0: child. Afghanistan. Have you got a guess, Fatima?
3: Saudi Arabia.
0: That's always a good guess. Neither of you are correct. Malaysia, the Home Affairs Ministry, said it undermines societal morals. Though if they wanted to stop kids thinking about sex, I would have thought those pictures in the book of overweight parents in their 50s (laughs) making love would have done just the trick. Uh, The penalty for selling the book in Malaysia, what was it? There is no such thing as a
4: Christian child.
0: 12 Lashes. Three years jail was the maximum, which makes Where Did I Come From? author Peter Mayer a kind of Salman Rushdie for kids. Mult- uh, next question, multiple choice. Which industrial genius of the Enlightenment period inadvertently gave his name to a legendary progressive rock band currently enjoying their 50th anniversary world tour? Was it A... Isambard Brunel, the engineer and bridge builder? Was it B, Johan van Oldenbarnevelt of the Dutch East India Company? Or C, James Watt, the inventor of the steam engine? Or D, Jethro Tull, inventor of the horse-drawn seed drill and horse-drawn hoe? God said to Noah, build yourself an archie, Arky. It's got to be D. Fatima says Jethro Tull, inventor of the horse-drawn hoe, is the source of the name of this famous band. Let's have a listen to the band in action. So you ride sails over the fields And you make all your animals
2: deals And your wise men don't know how it
4: feels
1: It'd
4: be thick as a Brick.
0: Yes, Thick as a Brick is the track, and Jethro Tull is the band. The answer is D, which means Fatima Misham is correct. Now, when they started that band in 1967, apparently they were so bad they'd never get booked twice at the same venue, so they had to use a different name. Each time, give the band a different name. One day, uh, the history enthusiast in the band named them Jethro Tull from The Famous Engineer. They performed well that night, so the name stuck for the next 50 years. So that's the age and reason about the band named after the man from the age of reason. Next question. In the 1960s, comedian Billy Connolly once used pages of the Bible to smoke hash. What book was it from? God said to Noah,
4: build yourself anarchy,archy.
3: Revelation?
0: <laughs> <laughs>
3: That's I don't answer. know. It feels like the sort of thing that would go well with a, with a toque.
0: <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, you seem, sound like you're speaking from experience, Fatima. No.
3: <laughs> Just well, hearsay.
0: <laughs> she says, Billy Connolly smoked from the book of Revelation. Let's hear from the man himself, reminiscing with Conan O'Brien.
5: So we were in this guy's house and I had some hashish and,
1: and nobody had any papers. So the guy who owned the house was up in his bed, drunk. I said, you wouldn't have, me have a Bible, would you? He says, yes. I uh, got a Bible. said, do you want it? I said, I just want a couple of pages. <laughs> <laughs> he, say, he said, yes, yeah, certainly any, any, any particular page. I said, no, no. I, mean, I a... there you go. And it was revelation. <laughs>
0: There we have it. Fatima Misham is correct. Next question. In Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the fictitious Babelfish lives in your ear and enables you to instantly understand all languages. According to the author Douglas Adams, how does the evolution of the Babelfish prove the non-existence of God? There is no such thing as a Christian child. It's
2: because the Babelfish is such a useful animal that it couldn't have existed by accident, therefore it proves God exists. However, humans need to believe and to have faith that God exists rather than to know he exists, and therefore he doesn't exist. Is that right? You are
0: such a nerd.
3: (laughs) (laughs) You just gave yourself away, (laughs) Nick. (laughs) That
0: that is exactly right. But then also uh, Douglas Adams cheekily has man proving that black is white, and then getting killed on a zebra crossing. So uh, remember (laughs) to look both ways before (laughs) applying logic to faith. Uh, And with that, Nick Spencer and Fatima Misham, I'm going to call the quiz a draw, and sadly we've reached the end of God Forbid. Nick, it's been great to have you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. And Fatima, thank you too.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: Nick Spencer, the research director at Theos, the London think tank on religion and society. is. Just about to head on that plane back home. He's the author of The Evolution of the West and Atheists, The Origin of the Species. And Fatima Misham has been with us as well, the writer and consulting editor for Eureka Street, a publication of the Australian Jesuits. You can also see her blogging at medium.com and listen to her on the Chatter Square podcast. And with that, we have reached the end of God Forbid. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Email me at godforbid at abc.net.au. I'm James Carlton. Until next week, remember to be good. God forbid.